So I had asthma since I was a young kid. It made me have really shallow breathing when it would come up. I couldn't stop coughing. It just made me feel like a fish out of water. I never really could get involved in sports because it was triggered by the exercise. I couldn't be around smoke smells and it made a lot of things really difficult. I had prayed for healing for my asthma before, but no significant changes had ever really happened for whatever reason. A few months ago, I went to the final Glory Youth Conference held at the summit, and the message was really focused on the Holy Spirit and connecting with Him. I definitely was just feeling the presence of the Holy Spirit more than I usually had opened up to before. I was just really feeling confident in God and that He will come through. And so I just prayed that if it were in God's will, my asthma would be healed. And then, I mean, I didn't feel like anything oh, magical or crazy in that moment. I just felt this sort of peace. Later that night, there was a bonfire and smoke is definitely an asthma trigger for me. I went and I stood by the fire and I was standing by there for like a straight two minutes on purpose and nothing, nothing crazy was happening. I wasn't coughing. I wasn't having trouble breathing. Everything seemed fine. And I was so happy that I started crying. I was so excited and joyful that I ran around the building a little bit because I just wanted to exercise my lungs and try to feel if I could breathe normal and everything felt like good. Ever since then, I haven't experienced any significant symptoms and my breathing is so much better um, any exercise or gym classes I have, it's so much easier for me, and I'm just healed of my asthma. There are a few of my friends who have been glad for me, but they don't believe it, and they've told me that it doesn't make any sense and it's not possible. And it's just made me a little bit sad because I honestly know no other way that it could have happened. I know 100% that I'm healed and there's no way it just disappeared. Like the only way I can explain it is that God just finally decided to heal me of it. And that's all I can say to them. I really got to experience something incredible. Miracles can still happen. God really just has this great power of healing that's unexplainable. So I think Faith is here today. Faith, are you here? Today, right here. Let's just praise God for Faith and what God did in her life. A miracle is an unusual manifestation of God's power designed to accomplish a specific purpose. 
And so in this series, we are looking at the seven miracles in the Gospel of John. Um, We started at a wedding, if you remember, where Jesus turned water into wine. Um, Then uh, we looked at how a royal official um, had a son who was remarkably ill, and Jesus healed him from miles away uh, just by saying he will be healed. And last week, Pastor Daniel unpacked the account of a man who sat by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, waiting for a miracle. And when Jesus encountered him, after all that time, he said, pick up your mat and walk. And Pastor Daniel laid on the, on the platform and, and told that story. If you missed any of these, uh, you could tune in on our podcast through the website to catch up, because I want you to know that every single week, God is teaching us something through these miracles. And so today, we're going to look at the next two miracles in the Gospel of John, uh, miracles four and five, um, and it's a two-for-one deal today. It is a good day to be at church. So you're going to get two miracles for one sermon, and I believe it's really going to encourage you this morning. So in John 5, 36, just the chapter before, Jesus explains why he is performing all of these miracles. He explains why. He says, I have testimony weightier than that of John. He's referring to John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And so all of these incredible signs and incredible wonders were all to testify that he was God's son. These miracles were were significant to every family and every person that, that encountered them, but the point of them, these miracles, were a sign so that people believed that Jesus wasn't just another human, that he was the Messiah. And so as we're going through these miracles together and as we're highlighting some of them that happened in our own congregation through video testimonies, the goal is that our faith in that fact would grow. The goal is that we would believe that Jesus was and is the Messiah. He is the coming king. He rose again. He's the savior of the world and he lives today. And that is the goal of all of this. And it's as if with every single miracle, he is just trying to show us in all sorts of ways just how much he loves us and just how real of a God it is that we serve. And so when we share these testimonies of the miraculous, it's like we loan our faith to others. It's our stories of of what God has done in the past become prophecies of what God will do in the future. And so these testimonies, they regenerate our faith. And many of the people on the video said, well, I I don't know if I should share. I don't know even if this is a miracle. And every single time, the entire staff is watching the video weeping (laughs) because we remember how great of a God that we serve. It regenerates our faith. And so as we're studying the Gospel of John, one of the things that I am just so intrigued by is that Jesus did miracles different every single time. He did it differently every single time. He didn't go to every wedding and bail them out of the wine crisis. He he didn't heal every person by saying, go pick up your mat and walk. In fact, we see in the other gospels, sometimes he spits in the mud, picks it up and smears it on your face. (laughs) Sometimes he he, he says, I'm going to heal you by laying my hands on you. There's, there's uh, miracles where he casts out demons. In one account, he casts them into a herd of pigs. In another account, he simply looks at the demon and says, shush. <laughs> and the enemy goes running. It's never the same. 
And what I believe that Jesus wanted to communicate to the people and to us is this. You can't bottle up a miracle. You, you, you can't buy and sell what Jesus is demonstrating. He is not predictable. He is not formulaic. He, he is not, the, you can say the right words or do the right things or pray hard enough or, or faith who had asthma, maybe someone else who has asthma can't go to the same final glory con, uh, conference and that'll happen to her. But the point is, what God is saying over and over and over is that he, you cannot manipulate a miracle from Jesus. And, and, and if, he if you took the inventory of all the ways that we see miracles happening in the scripture, and, and even as we talk about it here, that in our own lives today, that that is just still a hint of what God can do. That he may never ever do the same miracle the same way twice. And you know why? Because he wants to keep us guessing, yes. But also because he is limitless. He is limitless. There is no limit to what he can do. There is no uh, idea that we have thought that he has never thought. He is limitless and he is all powerful. And so he will do it a different way every single time. And so for those of you that love predictability and systems and spreadsheets, I'm sorry. <laughs> because you cannot put the miracles of Jesus in a formula. The first several miracles we see in John are done at, at different places. So they're done at a family wedding for a royal official uh, and one man at a pool. And these miracles are kind of trickling out. People are hearing about them, um, but they're trickling out because these little places that he's doing them are kind of small, smaller circles of influence. And so what we see in John 6, the first miracle we're going to look at today, it's as if Jesus swings for the fence, <laughs> And he says, you know what? I'm going to do a miracle with two fish and five loaves of bread for about 10 to 15,000 people. And after he, he serves this miraculous lunch, the news of what Jesus is doing accelerates so quickly. Because all of a sudden, maybe a few hundred people had been exposed to a miracle. Now, several thousand people have been exposed to a miracle. And I feel it's as if the equivalent of a, of a post going viral. Thousands of people have now been in the middle of a miracle. And they are about to take it back to their families and their circles of influence. And the word was out. Jesus was performing miracles. He was claiming that he was the son of God. Now, this is the only other miracle besides the resurrection that actually happens in all four gospels. So all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this miracle. And theologians believe that that is because it's a staggering testimony to the identity of Jesus Christ as God in human flesh. So this is the miracle that had very little debate, had very little argument opposing it over history because of the sheer mass of eyewitness participants. 15,000 people ate a little bit of a miracle. That was hard to deny that that happened. In fact, the enemies of Jesus at the time never denied any of Jesus' miracles. They, they didn't say, no, that didn't happen. He didn't multiply your lunch. He didn't heal your boy. They couldn't. They could see it with their eyes. He was sick and now he's better. There was no wine. Now I'm drinking it. But what they did instead is they attacked the miracle worker. They tried to kill him. They, they rejected him. 
And if the skeptics at the time didn't believe that Jesus was doing and saying something that had truth or something that was legitimate or something that was actually dangerous, they wouldn't have felt threatened enough to actually try to eliminate him. So we know that at that time, these aren't just good stories that are happening and, and all across uh, the, the, you know, the land and now they're being repeated. These things are actually happening because he is creating enemies. These aren't good legends that are teaching principles. These are things that are actually happening in that day. So let's look at the context of John 6. It was interesting. Um, the total population of Galilee at the time was about 40,000. And the scripture reports that there are about 5,000 men listening to Jesus teach. So if you read the scripture, it says there are about 5,000 men there. Now, uh, when they counted in that culture, they only counted the men because that represented the family. So we estimate that there is about probably could be 10 to 15 to 20,000 people in this crowd, including women and children. And so, which means about half the population of Galilee had traveled by boat or hiked up a mountain to hear Jesus's words. Half the town had gone to see him. And that is because Jesus was irresistible. Jesus was irresistible. He is irresistible. The draw that he had on the people was unexplainable. There, there wasn't padded seats. There was no air conditioning. There was no laser light show. There was no free gift. There was no Dan Cephas on drums. That would have drawn the whole crowd. There, there was nothing special that was happening. In fact, um, Jesus was there. He didn't put up any billboards or advertising. He didn't say, we're going to make it 10 a.m. service because that's like not too late, not too early. You can get out of bed. You still get home for lunch. This is the perfect time. He didn't do any of that. Jesus showed up. He talked about the word of God and the people came and they came and they came and they came and they came. And can you imagine 15,000 people on the side of a mountain? One man speaking the words of God. He doesn't have a megaphone. He doesn't have a microphone. He, he doesn't have a, anything to project his voice. You must have been able to hear a pin drop. I can imagine me at the back of the crowd with my kids going, they're trying to hear you. Getting all the dirty looks from the other people. Because you, you would have to, you'd have to be mesmerized. You'd have to listen so carefully. In fact, this is just my own logic, but with 15,000 people, there's no way they could have heard all of his words. So they must have just felt good that they were in the crowd where they knew Jesus was way up there. Well, I'm here. I'm nearby. If he does something amazing, I hope I can see it. And so all these people were gathered and they're listening and they get hungry. And we see what happens in John 6, 5 through 9. When Jesus looked up, he saw a great crowd coming toward him and he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to even have a bite and another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? And so it's interesting. Jesus asks Philip first. And the reason why is because he's from Bethsaida, which is only nine miles away. So he would know if there was any Paneras open. <laughs> right? And so he says, hey, Philip, what are we going to do? 
And Philip, he's a spreadsheet guy, okay? He thinks resources is the answer. He analyzes the situation. Uh, one loaf of bread is $2, carry the four, divide by two. Um, that is a lot of money that we don't have. And in fact, it would be a half a year's wages to buy bread for these people. We are sunk. And Philip kind of has this, look, I only see the problem. There is no solution. That glass is half empty. And so then Andrew responds a little differently. He says, uh, he, he seeks a solution, but it's a human one. He says, this boy has a lunch. <laughs> and I can imagine, maybe he snatches it from him. And the guy's standing there. This guy has a lunch. He looks in the lunch. There's two fish. There's five biscuits. I mean, this can't possibly be enough, but we have something. Maybe we could eat. <laughs> That's not in the scripture, but. <laughs> so he says, I have a lunch. I have a lunch. But it's insignificant. It won't even touch the magnitude of what we need. And so Andrew, he's trying to be an optimist. He's trying to, to say the glass is more full, but he, he just doesn't have a lot to work with. Poor guy. So Philip checks the budget, Andrew checks the pantry, but they both come up short. But one of the things that struck me is don't forget that these two men were at the wedding where Jesus turned water into wine. They, they were with him when, when Jesus told the royal official to go and, and heal, your son will be healed. They were, they were probably with him when, when Jesus said, pick up your mat and walk to the man in Bethsaida, yet... Neither of them looked to the Lord in this case. And I can imagine Jesus is like, okay, we're not there yet. I got to keep doing these things so he, they understand. That's what it says. Uh, Jesus already knew what he was going to do, but he said it to test Philip. And so this account is remarkably similar to an Old Testament moment that I want to bring us to because um, God is teaching us um, the same principle through two different situations, centuries apart. And in the book of Exodus, God was providing the Israelites manna um, or bread to eat every day. Now in both accounts, he's providing us bread. I mean, just the note. <laughs> and so he's providing us bread. And in the scripture, it literally, rain, bread rains down from heaven. So every morning, the um, Israelites get up, and they open the door, and there's bread on their doorstep. It's miraculously out there, and they gather it up. And the scripture says that the Israelites get tired of the menu, and they start complaining. They literally start complaining about the miracle. Not much has changed about humanity, has it? They start complaining. And so then God, in his graciousness, says, okay, I'm going to provide meat for them for an entire month. And so Moses, the leader, questions the Lord. And in Numbers 11, 21 through 22, we see what he says. Moses says, here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say I will give them meat to eat for a whole month. He's having an argument with the creator of the universe and he's saying, would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? Moses is doing the math like Philip did. He, he is saying, I can't even think of a conceivable scenario on how God could possibly fulfill this promise. And maybe you're there today. 
Maybe you're in that Moses and Philip mode. Maybe you're in that moment where you have no idea, you can't think of a possible, conceivable scenario of how God is going to fix your busted up life. You, you do not know how God is going to breathe life back into your marriage. You don't know how God's going to get you out of that financial pickle that you're in. Maybe you know that God wants you to take a job that pays less so you can spend more time with your family, but you literally cannot figure out how that's going to work on paper. Maybe you know that he wants you to go on a missions trip or he wants you to help a volunteer at Royal Family Kids Camp for a week, but you have no idea how you could afford to take a week off work, but you, you sense that God is telling you to do it. Maybe God is saying, um, adopt or foster a child or, or go to grad school or give to a kingdom cause or, or do just something that doesn't fit in your life stage or your budget. And there is no conceivable situation, there's no conceivable scenario that this is gonna work. And you're like Moses and Philip and you are saying to the Lord, I don't see a solution here. There is no solution. And what these scriptures are teaching us is that God's ordained plan will always be beyond your ability and your resources. That, that he, we will never be able to afford it or accomplish it alone, but God can do more in one day than we can accomplish in a hundred lifetimes. And what he shows over and over in this scripture, we see how God proves this to Moses. He proves it to Philip. He proves it to Andrew. And I love God's response to Moses' kind of feisty question is this. Is the Lord's arm too short? Is the Lord's arm too short? And as I was preparing this message for this particular Sunday, I felt like the Holy Spirit of God told me that that is somebody's answer today to a question you've been asking the Lord. That you've been asking him something, and his response to you this morning is, is my arm too short? Is my arm too short? And what God is showing us here is that if you get it into his hands, he will handle it. If you get it into his hands, he will handle it. If you get it into his hands, he will handle it. And so in Numbers eleven thirty one, this is how God's arm solves Moses' problem. He says, the wind starts blowing. The wind starts blowing. <clears throat> Excuse me and drives quail in from the sea. It says, by the end of the day, there were 700 square miles of quail. That's 36 times the size of the city of Erie. And the quail was three feet deep. The scripture doesn't say whether the quails are dead or alive. I thought either would be very creepy. So as I was picturing this, whether it's dead quail coming in or live quail. But can you imagine seeing that miracle before your very eyes? Seeing the arm of the Lord answer before your very eyes and quail being dumped across miles of land three foot deep. The same thing happens on the hill, on the mountain with Philip and Andrew and Jesus 
and not, God doesn't do one miracle. He does 15,000 separate miracles that day. He, 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 everyone got to experience the miracle that day. Jesus multiplied that little lunch that was provided, and the scripture says that they all had enough to eat, and there were leftovers. They all had enough, and there were leftovers. Okay, before we, before we touch on miracle five, uh, we need to just talk about one other person in this, um, in this miracle, and it's that little boy with the lunch. Now, he has no name. Uh, we don't hear from him about him again. If we do, we don't know it. And the truth is, God didn't need his two fish and five biscuits. God had quail dumped into a community from the, in the wind, in the sea, okay? He could have he spoken corned beef sandwiches and coleslaw into existence if he wanted to. Buffet. And it could have happened. But this little boy's sacrificial giving was a catalyst for this mega miracle. Remember, that little boy wasn't even counted in the roll call. They only counted the men. He wasn't even on the roster. And you know what else is amazing? He didn't even need the miracle. He was the one with the lunch. (laughs) Everyone else. Everyone else was sunk. This little boy's mama prepared him. He wasn't going to go hungry. He wasn't even in need of the miracle. But what Jesus wants us to see here in this tiny detail is that no one else has to think you're important for God to use you. You don't even have to be counted. You don't even have to be on the roll call. But God chooses to use the ones that sometimes aren't even counted to do the most miraculous things when we're willing to give sacrificially. And he wants us to see that if we give him what we have, he'll multiply it. Give him the faith that you have. He'll multiply it. Give him the talents you have. He'll multiply it. Give him the passion and the dreams and and the things that you have. It may not feel like a lot to you, but it's not about the size of the gift. It's about the heart of the giver. And that's what we see in this scripture. And so after the, the whole miracle lunch happens, um, the disciples go from this mountaintop experience into a boat, and um, Jesus stays back alone, probably to just recover from all the teaching and, and all the, the intensity of that. And we see in John 6, 18 through 21, a strong wind was blowing, the waters got rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it's I, don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. And so miracle five in the Gospel of John is Jesus defying all laws of nature from, and walking on the water. And in the Gospel of um, Mark, chapter six, it gives us a few more details of this situation, and so we can cross-reference it to see more about this miracle. And in Mark six, it actually tells a little bit more about what happens when Um, Jesus gets to the boat, he says, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. And they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. And that word hardened means unresponsive. It means lacking sensitivity or spiritual perception. And we know this because we saw Philip and Andrew who were 
with him in all the other miracles and still couldn't imagine, couldn't conceive how God was going to take care of this one. And so um, they were watching him do miracles. They were actually in his presence, but their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were not tender to the reality of Jesus. And in fact, the scripture says um, they thought he was a ghost when he came up. Their savior, their king, the, the guy that they hang out with all the time, they thought he was a ghost because he, he came up walking on the water. And when God comes in another form that we are not familiar with, we are sometimes afraid. In fact, you may be here visiting today and we're so glad that you're here and, and maybe there was something in worship or something that happened that you're like, oh, I'm not really used to that. And sometimes we feel a little bit frightened or a little bit afraid or uncomfortable or awkward about that. But let me tell you, it is religion that limits our point of reference for God. It's religion, it's the things that we have set up in our minds that we have decided this is how God works. This is how he does miracles. This is what it sounds like when he speaks. This is what he does. This is what I'm deciding. And we don't let the Holy Spirit of God define those things. God may want to do a miracle in your life that you've never experienced before in a way that you is brand new. You may have been serving God for 40 or 50 years of your life and God is gonna say, I'm gonna do it different this time. And when he does, will you be ready to receive it? Will you be ready to receive it if God doesn't show up the way that you expect him to? And so Jesus says to them, don't be afraid. In fact, in the, in the original language, it actually has more of a tone of don't resist me. Don't push me off the boat. I'm coming in to help you. Don't, don't resist me. And then Jesus climbs in the boat with them. And, and he's saying the same thing to you and to me this morning. He's saying, listen, don't resist me. Don't resist me. Jesus wants to climb right in the middle of your messy life. He, he wants to, to climb right into the middle of your brokenness. And in fact, this is the greatest miracle of all. Of all the miracles we're gonna talk about this month, the miracle that Jesus Christ wants a relationship with you and with me and that we can have that today and we can have it right now. That is the greatest miracle of all. And so if you're here today and you've never asked Christ to come into your heart and life, I want you to know there's no prerequisite classes. There's no paperwork. You just ask him. Just, Jesus, climb into the boat. Is it a little bit of a mess? I can't figure some of this out. Feels a little stormy out there. But I repent of my sin. You, have to, you repent of your sin. You, you, you repent of the way you've resisted him. And you ask Jesus to forgive you for your sin and ask him to come and overwhelm you with his presence. And in fact, if you want to make that decision today, just right after the service in a couple minutes at these tables here, we have some amazing friends that will be there. You could just talk to them about it and pray with them. It doesn't have to be um, big and showy. Just a moment with them. It'll be the best Five minutes you, you wait after service will be the best decision that you'll ever make. We're going to pray in just a minute, but before we go today, I just have one more powerful little detail that I don't want you to miss. So after Jesus um, feeds the 5,000, the scripture is very careful to tell you there were leftovers. And there's a lot of reasons that they say that. And that, we could, that would be like a three for one deal. So I'm going to save that one, okay, for next time. But the scripture says there are 12 baskets of leftovers. 
And Jesus says something funny. He says, gather them up, gather them up. But I want the crusts and the bones of the fish and the little bits of things that people didn't take. Like gather it up, let's take it with us. And as I was just thinking about that for a long time this week and, and asking the Lord, like why was that so important? Because you can do a food miracle anytime you want, clearly. So why is it that now you, know, you do this big miracle and you want all the scraps? And then it dawned on me that those 12 baskets full of scraps were likely carried on the boat with the disciples. Like they took those baskets with them. They were, they were leaving the scene. They took the baskets with them. They were probably at the feet of the disciples when they were terrified because the storm had increased. They, they were sitting all around the boat and maybe, just, just maybe, they were a reminder that if God can feed 15,000 people with two fish and five biscuits with leftovers, that he can rescue them from the storm. <laughs> that he's done it before and he'll do that again. And that what he can do, he is the way maker. He's the miracle worker. And what Jesus is saying, you didn't catch it the first couple times. So now you take the evidence with you. You carry around the fish scraps until you remember that I can do what I say I'm gonna do, that I am the miracle worker and I can do it. So here's the takeaway today. This is the takeaway today. I want you to take it with you. We don't have to know the plan to trust there is a plan. We don't have to know the plan to trust there is a plan. That's what those leftovers represented. That's what Jesus is trying to tell the disciples. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell us today. So would you stand this morning? I wanna pray for you and then I'll send you on your way. Um, I mentioned earlier that um, we, we were able to pray for um, that sweet family that lost their child this week. and. I purposely waited to the end of service to do this because quite frankly, I wasn't sure if any of us were gonna make it if we did in the beginning. But as a staff team, we experienced a really difficult loss this week. Um, Pastor Quint's wife, Erin, lost her father um, suddenly and tragically. And so we've been grieving around here. We've been celebrating that God's the miracle worker and that very thing we talked about, that greatest miracle of all, that Aaron's dad was a believer in Jesus and we know we're gonna see him again someday. And so with that hope, we stand here this morning with that hope, Pastor Quint led worship for you this morning, even in his grief. And I'm so thankful for them. And I just wanna pray this morning, if you're near them, would you just put your hands on them or if you wanna come on down, I just wanna pray for their family. Aaron and Quinn, I want you to know that we don't have to know the plan to trust there is a plan. And I don't understand it all. We don't pretend to, but we know there is a plan. So we're gonna pray over them. I'm gonna pray over you and I'm gonna send you on your way today. Father, I thank you this morning that we stand here are people that have problems, <laughs> but God, we need miracles from you. We see over and over in the scripture that you make a way that you do that. And I pray this morning that we won't let our religion taint our point of reference. God, that we won't put you in a box, that we won't um, determine how you're gonna do it, that we won't give you the instructions, Lord, but that we will trust you, that if you wanna use two fish and five loaves or, or you wanna use um, 
mud to spit in or God, however you want to do it, Father, we surrender our lives to you and we trust, Lord, that you can and you will do these miracles, that miracles still happen today. Father, we declare to you this morning that we believe your arm is not too short. God, that your arm is not too short. And Lord, we pray for the Limblads and we thank you, God, for their faithfulness to you. We thank you, God, that um, though this week has been tragically, horribly difficult, Father, that they have stood on your hope and in your presence. And God, that you are carrying through them every breath, every step. And so I pray you would continue to do that, Holy Spirit, that that you would um, meet them right in the middle of their pain, God, that you would jump into their messy boat and with the leftovers, God, you would remind them that you are a miracle worker and you have done it before and you will bring peace to them. You will do it again. And God, we trust you with that. Lord, we love you today. We thank you for your faithfulness. And it's in your name we pray, amen.